Welcome to Multifamily AP 360, the show where we discuss 360-degree views on mindset, passive, and active multifamily investment. If you're looking for tips and strategies, or just want to learn from the experiences of others, both good and bad, then listen on. This is Multifamily AP 360 with your host, Ramakrishna Chunchu. Today's our guest is Mike Kidding from Norhat. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. Thank you very much. Little bit about Mike. Mike, CEO of Norhat. Uh, they design, build, and rent apartments, and they are transferring the way apartments are built and managed by incorporating technologies and efficiencies that have revolutionized other industries and lead to high-quality, cost-effective projects. So with that, Mike, you want to add anything to your background? Yeah, as, as you said, at a high level, we're working really to solve housing by driving down the cost of constructing that housing. We're already achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in construction costs. We believe we can achieve a 50% reduction. Imagine what that means. I mean, someday your rent or your mortgage payment could be half. And so our dream over the long term is to solve America's housing affordability crisis. Awesome. So we will deep dive into that part a little bit later. Uh, before that, I want to know a little bit about who you are and why you selected this path, you know. But tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my parents started our, it was originally a family business and it uh, was very small. We built a few buildings here and there. In fact, I can remember family outings where we went to a local hardware store about half an hour away. And we would, uh, each kid, each my brother and I, we'd fill up two giant carts full of supplies, carry it on off to our, my parents' car. We'd fill up the little trailer up to the sky, drive down the highway. Not sure if that was entirely illegal. But yeah, we would build these buildings growing up. And by the time that college hit, I honestly wanted nothing to do with the family business. And if I'm very honest, the reason that is, is because I didn't want people to think it was given to me. In some sense, I really had to work past my own ego. But deep down, what I really wanted to do was to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. That was my dream. And I, and I started realizing that I could make that impact starting with my small family business and growing that into an enterprise that can solve housing affordability. So that's, that's kind of the basics of my journey. Got it. So at what point you decided to move into this this route and what kind of, you know, thought process you went through? Please share it on that. So my dad really wanted me to join uh, after college and, and partly I think it was to support and help me. And initially yeah, I really struggled with that. So I, I did jump in for a while without being fully committed <laughs> And I don't think I was a great employee at that point because I was so focused on other things that I was trying to do. And throughout those few months and the year or so of that process, I started to realize like I can actually have a meaningful impact. And so something clicked about a year in that said, okay, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. Let's do this. And my dad and I, it was it was great. Um, we about doubled the size of the company in about three or four years working together, which is exciting. And then... Um, over my overnight, my dad passed away. And so completely unexpected and no knowledge of it coming. It was just horrific. And I, looking back at it, I really, I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't really know what I was doing, but 
now looking back, I almost see that as the magic because we started then to question things. You know, why is construction done a certain way? Can it be done differently? Can we improve and grow and, and change the way things are done? And there was nobody to tell me no, right? For, for better or worse. And there was plenty of worse moments. And we started to change things. And that was sort of the gem, the starting point of our journey today. Awesome. Thank you. And you mentioned you guys are reducing cost, construction costs by 20%, production costs by 15% using some technologies. Share me like how exactly you're incorporating technologies and reducing these costs. So people often think there's like one magic bullet that solves the problems. And the truth is there isn't. I mean, there's fun things that make the news like 3D printing or volumetric construction, robotics. Those are all solutions to particular problems. If you want to solve costs overall, you have to solve 10,000 little problems. And so the first thing that we did was we brought all of the work in-house. So typically in construction, you have a different company that owns the building, different developer, different general contractor who coordinates the construction, different subs, electricians, plumbers, HVACs. These are all different companies, different suppliers, different manufacturers, pretty normal. But imagine for a moment if construction were to produce cars, we would have a different company installing the windshield, a different company installing the door, a different company installing the tires. And of course, the tire company, they would call in and say, I have another job, got delayed, I won't be there for a couple of weeks, your line would be shut down. And when they did come, they would be irate because they could only work on one car at a time. You know, manufacturing would look at that process and say, this is insane. Like, why are we doing it this way? But the reality in construction is this is normal, right? So we brought everything under one roof and that helped improve some efficiencies right there. But then we could start applying some simple techniques. So in manufacturing, they have the assembly line. <laughs> Nothing splashy or exciting about that, but it revolutionized what manufacturing does. Now in construction, assembly line is like, how would you do that? Because you can't move the building down a line. But what you can do is you can move the person through the building. So right now we take our buildings, break it into small batches, and each batch is about the size of a unit. The first team, say the framers, come into batch one, and then they shift every five hours to the next batch, batch two. Plumbers follow them. And everyone snakes through the building. And so right now, we produce another new, brand new apartment unit every five hours. And we're hoping to get that down even much further, much more substantially. But that one technique can take a project that, that may have taken 15 months to complete and drives it down to nine. Got it. Share me like so how many like apartment units you guys have built so far, how much time it took for each unit, how much it is costing using your technology stuff. We have about a thousand units under management right now. We're producing at about 500 units per year. And it's been really fun over the past few years. We've been more or less doubling in size every year. From a construction cost standpoint, we have a, a building that is valued at $100 million. Traditional costs of those buildings might be around $100 million. Our construction costs typically fall in the range of 65 to $70 million, to give you some ballpark or sense. Got it. So what is the minimum size of your apartments? 
it's funny because we've been growing so fast that go back a couple of years ago, it's really different than what it is today. Yeah. Today is uh, about 300 or so unit buildings is what we target. Five years ago, that was 30 units. So it's just a big change. Which markets mainly? Minnesota is where most of our properties are at. We now have manufacturing capabilities in Wisconsin, and we're now expanding our multifamily to Texas and our manufacturing capacity down to Mexico. And we have a uh, international staff. So about 10 to 15% of our staff are all across the globe. How exactly you're working with, you know, suppliers and, you know, other vendors? So how is your relationship with them? Are you importing from out of country or how exactly that working? <laughs> there are a ton of different products that we buy. So it really depends on which product you're talking about. For some of the products we're now producing ourselves, and so the first areas we dived into there was precast concrete. Those are the giant beams and planks that go into a building. We also have a wall panel manufacturing plant that takes in steel coils in one end and produces completed exterior vapor-proofed uh, wall panels and interior walls uh, on site. And then those supplies, we have a, a supply chain in such that the teams that are building the setting out the walls on site are getting deliveries of the walls just as they need them. So a truck pulls up and they literally, the crane picks it up and moves it, sets it in place. The next truck falls in. It's a continuous flow happening with that. Same thing with precast concrete is similar. For products that we do not produce ourselves, we have a variety of vendors here in the States, but we've now also expanded to international supply chains. So we have a supply chain team in Mexico and in China as well as other Asian companies that we then purchase those materials from those manufacturers and they bring in, usually it's large container loads. And then there's a process to take the large container loads, break it down into smaller loads so that the each group's batches, the products that they need get delivered. The goal is every five hours to each team. So you guys are building and you're also managing uh, those apartments. Is that right? That's right. We have a whole team that manages and provides the the experience to our residents. Our, our end customers are our residents. Yeah, share me some new techniques or new you know processes you're implementing from management point of view to increase the efficiencies. On the property management side? Yes. The number one thing, and this is true of the whole company, but I've really seen this truly in property management. The number one thing there is to hire great people. If you want to provide an amazing experience to the residents, we have smart home tech, we have online portals like self-guided tours, like that sort of stuff and 3D renderings and uh, walkthroughs of the units, which are really cool. Those are all good and they're almost a requirement for a higher end facility these days. But what distinguishes the good from the great, I think, is the experience, especially around relationships and connecting and in that human interaction. And so I think the companies that focus simply on the customer experience first, I think don't do as well. I think the right approach and the focus we take is focus on the, the employees first and make sure their experience is remarkable. And if you do that well, it trickles down to the staff. To give you some sense of how much energy we put into this, we fight to literally find the world's best people. And I really do mean that, the very best of the best. We will fly people in from other states into Minnesota to come work during the week and fly them home on the weekend because they're best in the world at their particular niche. And in property management, our head of property management oversees all of that is one of the top. She gets calls from the biggest organizations 
all the time trying to recruit her away. She's amazing at what she does. Awesome. You touch a very important point, like customer support and also relationships, right? It's all about those, you know, building, uh, giving that real, you know, the great experience to, you know, our clients. So how exactly you build that kind of culture and that's how exactly you're you know, attracting the right kind of talent, you know, best talent, your team, not only property management and also construction side also. Yeah, there's a lot there. So the first thing I think is, is to find the best people because like attracts like people. The experience that somebody has with an organization is, is directly related to their interaction with their manager and their coworkers. And so if those people are amazing A players, guess what? The player you just hired is much more likely to like their job and be willing to come work here. If you have a team of B and C players, that A player is going to say, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm moving somewhere else. Or I'm not interested to work there. For the recruiting side of it, this wasn't a challenge for us originally. And what we ended up doing was we hired on 14 recruiters. For, and our company size at the time was maybe 200. So 14 recruiters is a high percentage. But then what they do is they start to map out all the companies in the marketplace and start to identify who are the best players, the best employees of these other companies, and then work over time to build relationships with those caliber people. Because the best people, they're not looking for jobs. If you think you post a resume or a job ad and get the right people to come in, pretty, pretty rare. And so we we take a much more proactive approach to that. When you are thinking about culture, I think it starts with the leadership team. Uh, and it's little things. For example, we probably bring on about five to 15 new hires every Monday right now. And each Monday, I do the orientation. It's like uh, two and a half hours long. It really outlines the culture. We know our purpose, mission, values. There's interactive. We watch videos. It's laughing. It's engaging. But it's important, I think, that it comes from me because I understand how much energy I want and I'm trying to create the right culture. And so another piece of it is defining that culture. Like, what do you want to see? We have our values outlined, our purpose, our mission, our strategies, our goals, our habits, and our beliefs. That's the whole realm for us. And then uh, and then once you've established all that, then there's sort of like rituals you do. Things like one-on-ones, team meetings, annual offsite meetings, 360-degree feedback. And one really simple one to start off is a survey. We do a nationwide survey that's done... It's done by a nationwide company that a lot of companies engage with. And we do this survey every six months. But I think the most important thing out of the survey is after the survey is done, we share the results openly with the entire company. In fact, there's a secret part of the survey, which is the CEO's results. It's how I did. Well, guess what? The first thing that the team sees, they see my results unedited and it's not always pretty, right? There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But this past year, we took it up another notch and now we're publishing those results on our website where everyone in the entire world can see them. Again, unedited. You can read some good juicy stuff in those comments if, if you want to. But I think that's important because you need to be honest with where you're at. Once you do that, then you can work to make the change, to make improvements, and then you check in again six months later. How did I do? Is it better? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, and then you work on it again. Awesome. So those are like very, very important stuff you mentioned, like values, goals, and great culture. All these are very, very important. You need to align with those stuff. And share me any best experience so far. Some of the just emotionally best experiences come from the times that were so hard to get through, but then you overcame them, right? I could talk about some really kind of flashy numbers, like a $100 million building that we completed that's beautiful, right? But 
it's sometimes the small but painful things that you overcame that are more impactful. And an example of this was one of the first projects that I did after my dad passed away. The city at the time didn't believe I could do it. And I was not, I wasn't good. I was struggling at a number of different things. They actually came to the point where they shut me down. Uh, and this, they shut me down twice, believe it or not. And the second time they shut me down, they said, Mike, we don't believe in you. We don't trust you. You need to hire someone who could be a proper construction manager out here. It was a small building. It was, a, yeah, it was really, that was really hard. That was over Thanksgiving. And uh, I, I found someone over the course of three days, which is never a good way to hire a great person. And uh, he ended up not being a great hire. But it gave me some wiggle room to get all the work and stuff done behind the scenes. And over the next six months, we did the building. And I remember toward the end of that project, there was a water line. It was like 1,500 feet long, 15 feet in the ground. And the pressure test wasn't holding, which meant that there was a pinhole leak somewhere in this 1,000 feet of pipe that's buried in the ground. And... We had to solve this. It was like two weeks before it opened. We have people moving into the building. And if we don't solve it, we aren't going to be opening this building. And so as early as I could get up, really late at night, every day, working with excavators, I was in my fancy clothes, down in the mud, shoveling, trying to find uh, these leaks. And we luckily, we did eventually find it. And I remember a few days before we were supposed to open, when the inspectors came out, he said, there's no way you guys are going to be able to open. Like, there's no way. And we worked through the night for several days. And the final day came, half a dozen inspectors, the head building official was there. It was an entire half-day event. They dug into everything in this building. And I remember in the parking garage, in the basement, the head building official at the end of the inspection pulled me aside, said, Mike, I know this was tough. I know we were hard on you. But honestly, this is the best project. This is the best opening we have ever had for any building in this city. I was like, ah, finally, right? Some validation. Like we actually overcame this. And what I've learned so many times in my life is that the reality, whenever you try something new, is that you're going to be terrible at it. That's humanity. That's how we all are. We we start off this world, we can't even walk or talk, right? We are terrible at that originally. And what so many of us do is we start something new, we're terrible at it, and we start to think to ourselves, I'm a failure. I'm not very good. There must be something wrong with me. There isn't. Everyone goes through that. You just have to have the tenacity and energy to fail, 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 fail until you come out the backside and succeed. And so that was the lesson I learned from that. And and uh, it was really a good moment in my life. Awesome story. Thank you for sharing that. So what's your take on current market situations and how exactly you're navigating next 12 to 18 months? It's an interesting challenge, especially with the recent bank failures. The biggest thing that's hit us is the rising interest rates. And we're seeing this in the market too, where the number of multifamily starts is the smallest, at least the data I have, it shows it's the smallest it's been in more than 10 years, which is interesting because at the same time, you've got the most number of completed projects coming online. It's a really delicate market. I think the next 18, 24 months are going to be pretty tough. Well, we have had some advantages. Our costs are so much lower. So again, back to that $100 million project, our costs might be 65, 70 million, but a bank will typically fund 75%. So $75 million of that project. So we can get all the financing we need and then some from banks. And that has enabled us 
to never be limited by finances and growing quite rapidly. We've only been limited by the number of great people we can hire. But that's changed now with the rising interest rates. Debt service coverage ratios have hit. And so a bank now is only willing to fund maybe 55 or 60 million of that 100 million. And so for the first time, we've had to open up and start looking and giving people, actual uh, traditional investors, an opportunity to invest in our projects. And I've actually really valued that because it's forced us to try new things and experiment and learn and helped us grow as a result. So it's been a good thing. It's not going to slow us down, but I can see how for other developers who their margins are a lot tighter, it's going to stop people. Good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Next 18 to 24 months is going to be challenging, but uh, we need to navigate, you know, conservatively. Or, uh, we need to innovate some new stuff also. Cool. So what habits are helping you to be successful or grounded? I think one really important one is to what we call in our company, level yourself up or just have a hunger to learn and grow and improve as much as you can. I, I try to read a book a week. I don't always get there. And it sounds hard. But the way you do it is put it on during your car ride and listen to it or during your workouts, right? I I literally work to find the world's leading experts at things. And then we'll plead with them to come out like, well, pay you, come out and just teach us what you know. One example of that is a concrete savant who can literally make concrete that cleans itself. And what I've learned is these experts who are way beyond where other people are at, they're so much better. I do. Uh, I love masterminds and masterclasses with some of the world's leading experts. I'm in like three or four of them right now. Uh, I do quite a lot of networking, connecting with some of the most incredible leaders of titans of other industries. That has been amazing where I can help them. They can help me and we grow together. Beyond just learning and growing though, uh, another simple thing is establishing the right habits. There is a part of your mind that can try new things and experiment and learn and grow. But there's a part of your mind and a part of your time that just has to be habitual. And so for me, making sure that I always come home and put my kids to bed and engage with them every single night is important to me. Uh, sleep is an important habit for me. I know exactly each week what time I'm going to be doing my workouts. I do my 15-mile run every single Sunday. Right, Just having some of those key aspects that I know will help me live a more happy healthy and fulfilled lives, making that just a habitual part so I can free my mind to focus on the, the biggest challenges and moving some of those challenges into a habitual space for myself. Awesome. And anyone learning that impacted your life positively? The biggest, hands down, we've been talking about this, is hiring the world's best people. The best people seem expensive and they are expensive on a per person basis, but you have to realize that the best people outperform the average people by two to three to five to 10 times as much. And when you look at them on a per unit produced basis, they're actually the least expensive. But to give you another one that I've been learning recently, it's actually a great book. It's called uh, Multipliers. And the concept of it is that there are certain leaders that can multiply the efforts of others that can actually get and encourage, inspire their team to actually give 110% because they're growing and learning as much and they're inspired to do jobs. And then you have diminishers. Those are the leaders that don't inspire that, that maybe people are only giving their bare effort. They're giving their hands and not their heart. And so the interesting insight in the book though, is there's this category, and this is where a lot of us fall into, which is being an accidental diminisher. So many of us want to be a multiplier, but 
we don't even realize that sometimes our behaviors and our tendencies can be diminishing toward other people. And identifying what those are and trying to remove them and becoming more of a multiplier just increases your effectiveness overall. And one little tidbit out of that book that I found really interesting is that you want to identify every person's innate genius. And then you want to label it. You want to you want to tell them what it is. You want the team to know what it is. And then you want to make sure that that person is in a role that matches their innate genius. And if you do that one little technique, you're going to get so much more out of your people and be so much more of an effective organization. So true. Is that Dan Sullivan's book? I don't remember the author, but uh, yeah, multipliers. Yeah, sure. So any book that impacted your life? The one that most impacted my life is No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings. It's the history of uh, Netflix. But there's so many great insights in that book that are really powerful. Uh, another one, especially on culture, is Work Rules. That's by the guy, head of HR of Google, and uh, how they created their culture. Fascinating. Really, really useful stuff. Awesome. Thank you. And how can listeners can connect with you, Mike? Yeah, you can connect by visiting our website. It's norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. And there's a couple of interesting things on that site. The first is a new investment platform. We're actually opening up for the very first time for people to have a chance to invest with us. And we're basically replacing the bank. Where you get to be the bank, you get to earn your own rate of return plus the bank's profits. Really interesting platform. Check it out. And then the second thing is we're creating a new podcast called Becoming a Unicorn. It's about the journey of small groups becoming billion-dollar companies. And what we really want to do is to dig into the good, the bad, and the ugly. What is that experience really like? And so opening that up to the world and and showing people what that experience is like. Awesome. Good luck with that. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you for sharing your experience, how you're effectively implementing cost construction and also property management side. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. That's the end of this episode of Multifamily AP360, but we'd love to continue to help you on your journey. Head to ushacapital.com slash podcast to join our email list for more tips and strategies. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is Multifamily AP360 with Ramakrishna Chunchu. We'll see you next time.